On episode 123 of the Vincast, I chat with winemaker Mac Forbes, modern pioneer of sub-regional Yarra Valley. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of The Vincast. My name is James Gasbrook, also known as The Intrepid Wino, and it is awesome to have uh, you listening to another episode uh, and bring one out back to back. Uh, first time I've done that for quite a while, possibly even the first time this year. Uh, it, I've been very fortunate to be able to sit down with uh, quite a few uh, fantastic guests late and this week's episode is no exception mac forbes is probably a name that's very familiar to a lot of people listening uh doing some amazing things out in the yarra valley but uh, you might not know much about his uh, background so it was really great to to sit down and listen to uh, him tell me about his story his journey and uh, i do hope you enjoy our chat uh, please stick around to the end of the episode to find out how you get in contact with either of us and be sure to check out the podcast on itunes uh, leave a five star rating and a review and uh, check out some of the other episodes of the podcast but for now i'll see you on the other side mac forbes we are finally sitting down to chat for the vincast thank you very much for making some time in your busy schedule to uh, to be on the show uh, it is a pleasure to have you oh it's great that we could uh, finally make this happen i think it's only been two or three years of talking about it <laughs> maybe longer um you know i think Certainly, uh, from from my experience, you know, obviously I worked in the Yarra Valley for many years. But as far as the new wave of Yarra Valley, you were very much, you know, one of the first ones for me. And uh, and I got the opportunity uh, several years ago to to spend a day out in the, the valley. And we, you know, we did some micro flights to sort of look at different sites within the valley. So you've definitely been one of the people that have been on my list for for, for guests. So I'm glad that we we're able to to finally uh, sit down. Uh, I start every episode by asking my guest if they can remember was there a particular incident or experience in your life that made you notice wine and think about it in a different way that set you on the path or was it a, a gradual thing that uh, that happened that, and you suddenly found yourself oh I'm going to work in the wine industry now yeah it is something I reflect on occasionally I guess being a Yarra Valley boy where there was an industry bubbling away in the background that my parents were happy to celebrate with friendships and their social life there was something that was in the background, but it was not something I consciously, I guess, um, thought too much about or even thought I'd end up working in. But there was often bad wine on the table, the bag in box, you know, on the fridge or in the fridge. Yeah, like most, um, most, like most of us growing up. Oh man, had a cellar though, and and his his father had a cellar, and it was probably a lot of the you know, the winds and the penfolds and a few local producers and on a special occasion a cork would get pulled. So there was that as a, I guess, intrinsic to our dining, you know, barbecuing experience. So your parents enjoyed wine with food. It was a convivial kind of social thing as well? Yeah, totally. You know, very hard to reconcile, you know, the way that we engaged with food and wine probably in the 70s and 80s compared to now. I think it's a very different landscape. Sure, but, sure, sure. but it was part of the fabric of of being social and sitting down and breaking the bread, so to speak. Sure. Which part of the Yarra Valley did you grow up in? Uh, Coldstream. Cool, okay. And, and at that time, 
did were you well was your family kind of conscious of the Yarra Valley as far as a wine producing region was it still relatively early days and it wasn't as much it was starting to be a bit of investment in the region yeah I mean it was uh they moved there in the 70s mild man's a vet and I I only heard this story last week from him actually but he'd only been there for three weeks they'd opened the the vet surgery and been invited to lunch by Marley Marley Middleton got in touch and said why don't you pop over for lunch this Sunday and there was you know Reg Egan and all these people at, at lunch with them uh-huh. and so that was sort of diving in the deep end and and seeing that there was I think what must have been an incredible time in the Yarra Valley I I look back you know with a lot of uh yeah, not jealousy because I think we're in a pretty exciting envy. period, but envy. I think it was a pretty <laughs> dynamic period where they knew that going back to the, you know, late 1800s, early 20th, 20th century where there was a successful era of, of vines and, and wine and wine being exported, that there was already, you know, some confidence to to re-enter the, the madness of planting vines and a bunch of medicos that, probably had some healthy egos but also some good friendships and and were you know I think reasonably well traveled could come together and challenge each other to stick something in the ground and push each other and mm-hmm. share but and help but also you know a little bit of competition and and I think to have seen that emerge from nothing must have been pretty amazing yeah well I, you know former guest of the podcast Gilda Puri obviously you mm-hmm. know talked about um, the kind of previous generations and there was still some uh, some knowledge about, you know, what had been done in the past uh, and to sort of reestablish things must have been an exciting thing. But also, there, like you said, there was sort of confidence that it could happen if you compare it to regions in WA, for example, where there was historically nothing and so they were really started from scratch. You know, it was a slightly different proposition, I guess. Um for, for for you, was it a relatively sort of rural, regional upbringing or was it kind of a bit different because it was still it was pretty close to Melbourne? Yeah, okay. Uh, I think mum and dad have talked about driving back from Melbourne, you know, after dinner and the, along Marinda Highway, which for those listening between Melbourne and, and Lilydale now, which is the gateway to the Yarra, that's, you know, built up suburbia the whole way and uh, you can – you know, at your own peril, take public transport. Uh, whereas, you know, in the 70s, there were huge stretches with no lights and no traffic lights and no no street lights. Mm. So, uh, and still a lot of grazing land. So, um, we definitely grew up feeling we were, you know, we were out there. And I think that, you know, going back to how I fell into wine, I think I turned 18 and I got the hell out. It was uh, it was too small, right? And I was very conscious of that. So I just got on a plane and went straight to Europe and ran out of money in France and worked a vintage and, you know, was surrounded by people from all backgrounds sitting around the table at lunch and dinner. And I was, you know, my little cold stream brain just exploded and I couldn't believe how exciting it was to to share food over the table with people from, from all over. We, mm. We'd come from a very white, <laughs> Anglo, small, you know, community. Yeah. Did you have any ideas about what you possibly wanted to do for the future or did you kind of just know I want to get out of here and 
and it just happenstance you were were in France and in need of uh, funds. Yeah, I had zero idea what I was, you know, where I was headed. Right. Um, which which part of France was that? Uh, southwest, the Gaik region. Right. Okay. Cord. Um, so, my father's Irish cousin was actually the mayor of Cord at the time, and she'd married a Frenchie. So, right. I sort of, you know, got in touch with them when it was all snail mail, and uh, you know, you'd had to organise things a fair way out. So I knew I was going to pop through there, and you know, coincided with where I could earn some money. Did you have much French at that point? Uh, not a lot. No. Was it challenging? <laughs> uh, it was a bit. I should have taken more advice that my old man offered that, you know, best way to learn it's between the sheets, but I, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't quite take, you know, take that advice. So it was a, a little bit more laborious as a result. But, sure. Um, yeah, but I mean, I think the, the English language now, you know, penetrates a, a lot. It's very far which is, reaching. Which is kind and, of a shame in a way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that it, it, people aren't necessarily pushing themselves but it, to But that's to a pretty rural language. part of France and... Probably, I'm trying to remember. I don't think there was a lot of English. I remember getting a lot of bad instructions in French and electrocuting <laughs> myself and oh, no. going into the old underground concrete tanks that were full of carbon dioxide and, you know, I was lucky to survive, really. oh s wasn't so much of a thing then? Not. Probably still isn't <laughs> over there, actually. Um, and apart from the kind of that um, sort of family that uh, that – the, the celebration of of sharing and, and enjoying a meal together and working together was there anything in particular in those in that early experience that kind of really stuck with you? I think I was fascinated by how complicated the industry seemed and how little I understood of it. It was, I mean, you probably don't understand much about many things when you're eighteen, and no, um, you think you do. Probably don't now either, but. <laughs> I think it was exciting, exciting that, you know, I'd, I'd done a smattering of science and um, I guess actually seeing practical application and mm. and farming, which I'd grown up on 50 acres where we hadn't done a lot in terms of farming. It was more cattle and what have you. But to see that marriage, I guess I sort of felt that I was jack of all trades, master of none in terms of at school, you know, across the board. Yeah, and yeah. That probably was appealing because I could see there were elements across the, their business in France that I was looking at that ranged from, you know, selling, marketing, right through to, to farming. Mm -hmm. I think that was where the whole industry started to get a little bit of a, you know, a bit of a grip on me in terms of, thinking, well, shit, if I start in one side and I'm not quite sure, then I could probably move around within the industry and the industry at large right. had, had some appeal. I just couldn't really see where I was going to end up. Yeah, okay. Which is probably exactly where I am now. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so it was at that point you sort of decided that this is something you wanted to follow? It took a couple of years, came back home and was studying at Melbourne Uni and completely lost. And at that point my old man's, you know, giving me a, a little niggle in the ribs saying, what about winemaking? Because mm. that's in his eyes. He'd applied for the winemaking course. As it turned out many years later, I was flicking through some of his old wine books and I saw the letter of rejection there. No, really? Um, for, for one of the summer courses that had been oversubscribed and Patrick Island had signed off to the letter to Hugh saying, look, unfortunately, there's not a spot for you. So I didn't know he had such an interest going back through that period, but I, I knew he was pushing me pretty hard and being, you know, probably 19 at that point, 
you're pretty good at telling your old man where to go when he's trying to push you into something. So it actually took my mother pulling me aside and saying, you know, maybe you actually should give it a little bit of thought. And it was probably more the voice of reason and empowering me to make a decision rather than bowing to my old man's, you know, suggestions. And I thought, well, Melbourne's going, uni was going nowhere, so I might as well go over to Adelaide and give the winemaking course a go. Mm-hmm. And see where it takes me. So it was sort of an open mind, not saying I want to be in the cellar because I wasn't even sure about that, but I thought as a platform to bounce into the industry, it's, you know, that that was as good a starting point as any, I guess. Yeah. So you you went and studied at uh, Roseworthy? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um and what was that experience like? Like was there did so you were uh, an internal student? Yeah. Four, was was four there an external in program at that point? It was just being transferred down to, to, to the weight. Yeah, okay. So we were the first proper year, but there were still transitional subjects up in Roseworthy. So right, okay. Yeah, look, it was it was a good time. Um, Adelaide was fairly parochial. I think I got my car keyed the first night I moved to Adelaide. Because of your Vic license plates? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but I had fun. Um, I was lucky that... I think in the third year we had to make some wine and um, I thought I'll ring. We had some Cabernet from McLaren Vale and I thought I'll ring John Middleton. I didn't know John personally but mum and dad obviously did and so I rang and I had my A4 piece of paper and a pencil just to take a couple of notes and it was back then it was all STD calls, time by the minute that was going to cost a fortune. Oh, yeah. So I think two hours later and one A4 piece of paper and two rolls of toilet paper of notes. Like, you know, I, I'd just been scribing what John had, was dictating, which was principally could be um, condensed down to don't trust those bastards, don't listen to anything they're telling you about making the wine, pick on the, you know, think about picking in this window and not, you know, two weeks later. And and he gave a lot of advice there that, that was fairly overwhelming. But what it did show is that there's a lot of different ideas and a lot of very strong um, opinions that often will contradict in this game. Mm. So it gave me probably greater confidence not to just take everything as gospel, which at the time was, you know, a very technical learning process, winemaking by numbers, and mm-hmm. um, to sort of have someone come in at a fairly crucial time for me and, and just tip it all upside down. Yeah, um, yeah. Because, I mean, former guests of the podcast, you know, who are now obviously, you know, fantastic winemakers in their own right and and doing their own thing, have uh, talked about how studying, whether it was Charles Sturt or whether it was um, at Adelaide Uni, you know, they would, at at that time, very much they were um, educating career winemakers who would, in, you know, in in their minds, ideally go and work for large commercial ventures, not necessarily doing, a, you know, a small project of their own. So they had to learn how to make wine at that level. Mm-hmm. And then if anything, you know, after they finished uni and, and maybe uh, several years after working in, you know, that that kind of part of the industry, they almost had to unlearn stuff mm-hmm. and, and, like you say, find that confidence to do things differently. You know, it sounds like you you, you got a, a, you know, a bit of a, a leg up with uh, with uh, John in, in terms of... Yeah, it's maybe, not to maybe take away the positive things that were, were, you know, that I did learn there, but I think I compare it a lot to the medical profession and, you know, I mean, you you had a... We just touched on it that you had a baby not long ago, mm. but you look at the process of dealing with 
you know, the medical profession and it's primarily about risk, you know, minimization. Sure. And often, you know, yeah, I see a lot of winemaking the way that we were taught back then about, you know, having absolute control. Sure. And sometimes depending on your perspective, you lose something by, you know, bringing maximum or as much control as you can right. to a situation. And uh, so, yeah, it's been a, it's so, still so is a long process to try to, you know, find our way through that. Are you kind of saying that, in, you know, if you compare it to medicine where, um, you know, you might want to allow the body to fight off infection or, you know, or repair, heal itself on its own rather than prescribing a lot of medication which might kind of, it's just a Band-Aid. It's not necessarily in the same way that, you know, you don't need to add a lot of chemicals or do a lot of, you know, heavy fining, filtering, you know, the, the wine or, or use commercial yeasts, for example, the wine will find its own rhythm and it'll be better for it. Is that sort of what, yeah, you're, what you're saying? Knowing we've got tools um, available, but to Doesn't use, mean you have them, to use when, them yeah, yeah, use them, you know, when, when you really need to, which comes back to, you know, from a, a wine perspective, better fruit mm-hmm. and being on a smaller scale and being more attentive, mm-hmm. you know, I think you uh, you can be a lot more responsive. Having having understanding, having awareness, experience, I guess, can be beneficial. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so obviously every vintage is uh, an opportunity to learn and, and, and build up your confidence. Um, where, what was your sort of first step into the industry as an, empl- an employee? Oh, shit. That, I mean, yeah, I was thrown in pretty quickly. I got out of uni, worked a vintage, and then my first full-time job was at Mount Mary. So that happened. In hindsight, it makes perfect sense. But at the time, um, you know, I, I sort of popped in to see John and I was on my way to Canada. So um, he probably did more the persuading, and I think looking back now it's pretty obvious when you consider it was uh, 1999, the trends at the time were still pretty big wines um, and a lot of people coming through with more experience than I had very clear ideas on what they'd do to fix the Mount Mary style. Was right. Sort of my reading on a few few people who had applied and I guess I was walking into it highly respectful and, you know, I, I celebrated the the wines of Mount Mary then in the face of, you know, a lot of the, you know, what was going on at large in the industry. And at the end of the day, John knew I was probably pretty shit scared and I wouldn't do anything to jeopardise what was a very, you know, established style. Sure. John had the confidence uh, with his business and the wines that he was making that um, he didn't have to sway with the trends. So he was probably wanting someone who would be, the most respectful, you know, they could be yeah. to what was in place and not think, oh, we can fix this by doing a bit more of this or a bit more new oak here. And um, so going someone really junior who had already exhibited respect to John's ideology sure, um, was probably, even in the context of my complete inexperience, was probably, you know, one of the safer options for retaining what was already in place. Right. That's my read on it now. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think the worst outcome for John in hindsight would be that he employed someone and they took the wine direction off, you know, in mm. a completely, you know, 
did a 180 and cranked everything up. So he was fighting, you know, tenaciously when he wasn't in the cellar all the time to have someone in there who was more his eyes and ears. Yeah. And every night I'd go down and have a glass and tell him exactly what I'd been doing and ask him questions. So he probably had a better idea of what was going on in the cellar than I did. Yeah, and of he course. he never really walked in. Well, yeah, I, you know, it's his cellar and he he established it with with an idea and uh, had sort of worked out things. But I guess that, that, that simple act of you calling him when you were at uni and kind of asking for his ad- advice probably planted that seed in his mind about, well, here's someone who is willing to to, to learn and be open-minded but, you know, kind of And to taste, understand. I went through, uh, you know, my, my two-hour appointment with him on my way to Canada as I was seeing it and we just tasted, you know, a lot of wine in the end and I understand afterwards that he was, you know, once we started tasting and there was a lot of, you know, sympathy in the way we were reading the wines that, Maybe at that point he was like, oh, well, let's explore this further. And so more wines were opened and we pretty much were on the same page. So, you know, the trust of someone's palate is sure. probably as important as anything else. Yeah, and, and kind of having an idea about not just what kind of wine you would enjoy but why you enjoy it, like why you would sort of gravitate towards a certain style of wine. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how, how long did you, did you work with the Mount Mary? Oh, it wasn't that long in the end. It was... About two and a half years. Okay. But, you know, a couple of vintages under the belt. Yeah. Um, what what was the sort of the, the next move after that? I went to the uh, antithesis. I went to South Corp Europe and had, um, yeah, a few years over there working in a technical role. They had some wineries over there working in, um, working a little bit in their, you know, PR marketing, seeing how they were managing that and then coming back here over vintage and grading fruit. So um, so the position in Europe, it was, this was for, for wineries in Europe or this was for Australian? It had a bit of overlap. Okay. So reporting to, um, yeah, if there are any technical elements that were attached to the wines going to Europe, there were the wineries in Europe. And then um, one of the greatest things was just to come back and travel around primarily South Australia grading fruit. Right, okay. Um, I think, yeah, six weeks a year of just tasting and grading fruit was probably, you know, yeah, a fantastic thing in hindsight. Well, obviously it probably set you up for, for the, the, the current business, but uh, um, so, so grading a fruit is basically sort of determining where it will end up as far as the quality of the, the I, wine? Or? No, I never presumed that, but I'd go in and make notes about how the fruit would look, taste, how right. the vines were holding up and, yeah, any any other observations. So, And that was all the way through from, you know, quite sort of bulk sort of stuff all the way through to very premium things? It was more to vineyards. Okay, right. Um, so, yeah, it was a lot of Barossa and Eden and... Clare and Coonawarra, McLaren Vale. Um, so saw some of the great South Court vineyards. Sure. Um, didn't always agree with how much longer they'd want to let the fruit hang out and things like that, but saw some some of the world's best vineyards. What was the, 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 the style, the de rigueur um, of, of Australian wine back then? Uh, Were they pretty big and powerful? And they were fruit, starting fruit to come driven? back. But it was still fruit, you know, fruit ripeness, fair bit of oak. But we were just starting. This was 2000 and 
three, four through that period. So sort of early drought years. Yeah, still. and just starting to – the conversation was just starting to wake up that maybe you can have too much of a good thing. Sure. Were the, and what was the proportion of the business? Was it sort of still 50-50 export domestic or was this very much an export focus? Uh, in terms of South Corp? Yeah, uh, as far as the fruit you were looking at. Where- no, look, it was just really feedback to the wineries. Then they'd work out what they were doing with it. I was kept well out of the wineries because I <laughs> – opinions that probably weren't totally consistent with theirs but um, they were very happy to you know just get a have someone on the ground when middle of vintage or you know leading up to vintage someone else just saying hey you should come and look at this it's looking close okay so it was just an additional resource for them and pretty good luxury for me Uh, well what were the uh what were you doing over in europe what was the uh living in london having a pretty good time yeah um eating and drinking well yeah just traveled you know representing South Corp brands in a PR capacity. So there was a mountain of, you know, travel across all of Europe. Yeah. Plus, uh, yeah, getting getting to see, you know, the wineries that they had, plus, you know, built in some extra time for myself. How did you find uh, in terms of the, the, the European markets, particularly in the United Kingdom, where obviously Australian wine is very strong, um, you would have spent some time with trade and media and you know, looking at other brands, not necessarily Australian brands. Yeah, and I, I guess I, that was where a fair bit of scar tissue was laid down for me in terms of hearing the, the perception of Australian wine, farming, our soils, that, you know, everything was blended over there, everything was lacking a real sense of, of soul, I felt, mm. and and we were just being pigeonholed into a certain box, and that box was starting to look pretty tired in terms of the the market and what people were wanting to drink. And so, the itch for me to get back here and say we've got more to our story than just blending. And there's a heap of single vineyard estates I can show you, but the idea that our wonderful old soils have got their own story and those nuances that people just were so quick to dismiss, mm. you know, as being available or or true to our environment i you know i think i was well and truly uh the gauntlet was laid down for me to come back and and start to prove them wrong that was sort of so so what was the sort of the 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 first step in that kind of direction yeah I, i just i told enough people that i was coming back to start my own thing that when i got back I either was going to have a lot of egg on my face or I actually had to start my own thing. So we were told to put up or shut up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's quite a good thing. Fear, I've realised, is something I respond to quite well. So the fear of uh, losing face or the fear of then failure, I, I was, I think I actually thought I'd fare better just failing. Sure. But having given it a go. Yeah. So um, the, the, the first stages of... What uh, eventually became Mac Forbes um, establishing in the Arrow Valley? Uh, those first year, you know, couple of years, uh, I think you should always appreciate those periods more than you maybe do at the time. You get so fixated on, if only we can get to the next step. Sure. And you realise that never changes and the excitement of starting with a totally blank canvas and just getting in the car and driving around. And I, you know, I had my question marks over seeing things getting earlier and warmer and thinking, well, maybe we need to revisit just how we're looking at the Yarra Valley. Maybe there are elements to the Yarra Valley that I hadn't considered or so 
you know, a vineyard like our Wurrialic property was one of the first I came across and being south facing in the 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 upper, you know, starting to go upstream so that the cooler upper Yarra, it sort of broke all the rules that I'd been told was good farmland for for still wine in the Yarra, but it, all of a sudden it sort of I guess pricked my interest and I liked the idea of the soils away from the sun, protection from our wind, not really knowing where it would go, but having found this small Pinot and Chardonnay vineyard that was pretty much, you know, uh, not really being run for, for fruit sales because no one else was interested. And that was really one of the first first sites I found that made me, you know, get a little bit excited. So do you think that, uh, I guess, possibly the experience travelling around South Australia um, and then because this was, uh, you know, the early stages of what ended up being quite a, a, a lengthy drought that really was quite fortunate for you because you were able to think, well, this is the trend. I need to think differently about working in the Yarra Valley for the future, knowing that, you know, if it does head this way, then I'll be better prepared. Uh, I'd say it's more having worked in the Doro Valley where I saw really exciting, nervy, fresh, vibrant parcels of fruit that were on the north slopes. Yep. So, um, you know, much cooler and away from the sun there. That was a light bulb moment for me. I was like, wow, we're in a warm part of, of Portugal. Very warm. Um, to find little pockets that work away from the, the warmer aspect that deliver this vibrancy, yeah. uh, this nerve. That, that, was, that was a light bulb moment for me. And then I was doing quite a bit of work in Austria at the time and the mindset there seeing people who had always considered the ripest parcels the best and, you know, coming from a you know, region like Burgundy where it's the hill that defines what's best to ripeness, defining what's best was a bit of a shock. And mm-hmm. um, the idea in parts of Europe that there is no such thing as overripeness and yet I was witnessing in certain years fruit that I thought was overripe I just thought, well, things are changing really quickly here. And yeah. mindset is the biggest hurdle to us um, evolving, not just, you know, not just in Australia, but I think potentially in more established regions where um, things have been in place for a lot longer, what what our strength might be as Australians is the ability to, you know, turn on a dime and, and, and flip what we think we thought we knew not to be as hamstrung by generations of we've always done it this way, but to be able to say, well, we did it this way and it looked good, but, gee, this season looks so different and we're going into potentially a new chapter of of challenges that we should be able to as Australians have the freedom to look at things differently. Mm, Absolutely. Um, At that time when you were starting to establish, uh, was that a reasonably good time as far as, the ability to buy fruit uh, and 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 make some wine. I would have thought that you know there would be a lot of investment in in vineyards in the nineties that they were really starting to come on board. But but it, but the yarra race was, was still relatively strong. There wasn't necessarily an oversupply of fruit so much. Am I am I correct in that? Yeah, I wouldn't say oversupply, but I think gee, you look at you know Luke Lambert, Gary Mills. Bill, you know, a bunch of people that were coming through around the same time, 
we were bloody lucky when you look at even now with issues with phylloxera and just the success of the Yarra Valley. Yeah. That I think it would be a lot harder now to say, right, we're going to pursue a certain, you know, idea, which is really what mine began as. I want to explore this idea of what our soils and our subregions or our, you know, what the nuances actually bring to the wines and whether there's a, a story and a, a, you know, a matrix that we can start to put together. Whereas now I think people are going to have to be even more resourceful in terms of finding parcels of fruit and it might be out of adversity that Cabernet makes a comeback now, which would be amazing. But, you know, you think at the time there was fruit that was available and if you went around and you talked to people, you could quite easily find fruit if you wanted it. Right, okay. There were definitely a number of vineyards that the fruit wasn't, you know, highly desired or, you know, with a little bit of uh, TLC in the relationship with the grower, you could, you know, really get some great parcels of fruit. Mm. So how did you approach that? You, you Did you have spe- specific areas in mind in the Yarra Valley? Or, I mean, you said you talked about kind of this Wurialic vineyard was the, the first one you approached it. How, how did you – and and was it – from the beginning, did you always have this idea of, right, I'm going to do single site or single sub-regional wines? Yeah, the – the little drawing I had uh, while I was in Europe of how it would look was pretty similar to how it looks now. Maybe not quite as many wines, but it was that we would have, you know, a nice, uh, you know, Yarra Valley Pinot and Chardonnay that would be declassified, and then we'd be pursuing these sites. Mm. And because even Pinot then- was sort of the default variety, but it was never designed to be the Pinot and Chardonnay, you know roadshow it was always i want to understand what it means to be from the yarra valley and walk these soils um the ideology had always been based on trying to emulate and i think cool climate anywhere that's got pinot and chardonnay as an emerging area begins with reference points that are you know often closer to france and uh we were really battling to to say with confidence this is who we are and this is what our soils give us that nowhere else in the world can deliver and we're proud that the wines look different. You mm-hmm. know, for a long time we were wanting the wines to look like they were from Burgundy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a really reasonable starting point when you've got no reference points of your own. But I think over time, surely with all the work you do in the farm and, and with the soils that you would want your own your own picture to emerge. You were very much at the forefront of um, those early days uh, in terms of um, doing sort of sub-regional, you know, same varieties, sub-regional kind of breakdowns of the Yarra Valley because to a large extent it was pretty much either Yarra Valley, it was a regional blend, or it was a single site, you know, a a small producer, like, well, this is our vineyard. Mm -hmm. Um, Was it challenging to kind of educate um, consumers, trade, media about that. What what sort of uh, how how did you kind of effectively establish this kind of part of the Yarra Valley story uh, in in the minds of of the people who were actually drinking the wine? Yeah, it was a lot harder than it is now. <laughs> the concept's dead easy, obviously, because it's been replicated all around the world. Yeah, I think the hardest thing was often some of my peers, bizarrely thinking 
you know, that it's just too complicated and how can you have a picture emerge, but a total, yeah, mind block that the Yarra could have validity in this, you know, in this space, um, which I think is just absurd. I, I, the thing that I'm really enjoying now, Max Allen um, did a wonderful project with the Dupuris, which I don't know if you've touched on at all, but um, with certainly uh, the Dupuris and the history with uh, Barrett going back to the you know early 1900s mm-hmm. and um, the community uh, that was out around the Yarra Valley and Corindirk, an area of, of land that has incredible value both to the local Indigenous community but just in terms of farming potential as well. And from what I understand, and Max has talked about this, there used to be a map that they had pretty much, you know, every knoll, every little dip and about what what value that land had and what could be planted or farmed there. And there was a, you know... For, for viticulture or just... Not viticulture. Agriculture in such, general. But there was an appreciation of the nuances and what that can offer. Right, okay. And probably not dissimilar to a map of Burgundy. Yeah. That every crew and, you know, that it was broken down with that knowledge. And... uh just feels bloody clumsy the way we're doing it now and approaching it that we don't have the detail. And I would love to, you know, just quietly, we're trying to, you know, engage the local community, Indigenous community, to see if we can talk and share maybe some of their their knowledge, not from a, a commercial position, but more an understanding and maybe a sharing what, you know, what they understand to be of such value in the land that we now share, how mm. do we recognise that and potentially, you know, capture more authentic messages that the land has to offer? That for me is, you know, a really exciting thing. But it was something, going back to your question, in 2005 it was a bloody total minefield going out and trying to put forward the township names and to share it when people would say, but surely the better wine is when you just put all the components together. Yeah. And, you know, quite coming back, to that, coming back to the whole issues with blending. Yeah. And it's like, well, blend it, do that. And sometimes they could see that the sum of the parts was less. And sometimes the wines, by our conditioning of what we thought good wine is, you'd say, oh, that's a much better wine. Mm. But you lost all the personality of the sites. And we're not trying to make great wine. You know, when we're not trying to make and this is quite a journey in yourself, I think, but we're not trying to make a wine that looks like anything in particular other than the fruit and, you know, what we see coming through the hills and and that we plant. And so um, to get people to understand we weren't trying to make a wine to get 100 points, that was, you know, that was one of the big battles. So everyone had an opinion on how we could be doing it better and to say we're not using new oak or that we're, um, you know, for our single our top wines or you know that was and people say but this doesn't look like it's typical Yarra Valley and you're like yeah but we haven't added anything yeah so it's pretty true it's yeah. just not something you recognize but even then you would say well what is Yarra Valley that, exactly. that's what that's exactly what I'm trying to explore you know beyond um just making this kind of broad regional style and then whacking it to into me, new barrels you think Yarra Valley should look like as opposed to yeah, what like we're seeing the, ourselves. The decisions that a lot of producers would have been making or, you know, particularly more commercial enterprises, 
you could argue, well, we could do the same things in, in the Bellarine Peninsula and the wines would look pretty much the same. What we're trying to do is not only are we breaking the region, which is a pretty big region yeah. and it has a lot of you know, sub-zones and elevations and aspects and all that sort of stuff, you know, but then to sort of make the wine in a style or, you know, the, the, how you work with it, you know, after, you know, it's been grown in an ideal scenario to kind of keep it in a, a, a what you would argue is a purer sense is a much more honest uh, expression and, and a way to kind of compare subzones yeah. of the same variety. Yeah, we've never set out to make a wine that would sell. We've set out a wine to capture, you know, a site. And then we work out how to sell it. And and later. early on, it must have you must have had a lot of people sort of say you're insane and just sort of walk away. It's like this is never going to work. But there must have been some, uh, you know, people who were supportive in saying I I can appreciate that you are taking a risk and you're actually you have this idea in mind and you want to see it through. And they would have supported you. And and there was great support because you know, not all the wines were you know were very good sure it was a mixed bag and that's what happens when you're buying in fruit quite often and from a range of areas and trying to get a grasp of it so there definitely was some support that i felt was potentially you know inconsistent with sometimes the the wines we were putting forward that the support was too great um but you look back now and, and you know one thing i love about the wine industry is the best parts are where partnerships are you know a two-way street yeah and you know i i really appreciate those original relationships where they they definitely have been two-way and clearly those are the kinds of people who love the story and probably one of the things i connected with was the story that you were trying to tell in terms of you know the the, the that kind of yarra valley regional story and isn't that all that wine is is that you're capturing every year what you see Absolutely. Stick it in a bottle. It is a snapshot. And then people get to see it. And, you know, whether there's parts of the Yarra you don't like or, you know, yes, potentially the way we've handled it. But one year we have this site and, you know, as I uh, mentioned to you before we started this, we lost Gruyere to Phylloxera in 14. Mm. Now, how do we communicate that? It's sort of quite simple, actually. It's just we had that vineyard and then we lost it to Phylloxera, what we're bottling, and, and when it, that stops it's just reflective of the challenges in the Yarra Valley today. If anyone is interested about the Yarra Valley, the the absence of certain sites and then the, the development of other sites and the varieties, when we're 20 days earlier now compared to 20 years ago, that mm-hmm. has a huge impact. Mm-hmm. We're just sharing our story and it's um, and our story is just what we're seeing in the, in the vineyards, farming, how we capture that. And what seems to make sense. And that's sort of where I think um, people who love wine can probably feel a bit jaded where they might perceive a, 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 a brand or a producer where the story isn't really changing. Like I think people, they like a story, but I guess they like it when it evolves. And that's kind of the, 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 the transitive nature of, of Mac Forbes. You know, you are, you're not saying oh, okay, I know exactly what I need to do. You, every year, learn a little bit more. You might change things and people might compare the wine, the, the way you were making the wine 10 years ago to now and say, oh, you, you, you've changed things. It's like, well, yeah, that, that's, that's the journey. That's the story. The story evolves. But in the same way, you know, where you might be 
uh, sourcing fruit from changes. I think that's kind of why they're for me, there's never really been a time where Mac Forbes hasn't been at the top of the list as far as not just great but also dynamic producers um, where you think about producers in the Yarra Valley who 10, 15 years ago were kind of at the top and they're kind of people are going, oh, yeah, I mean, I know that. What's new? Mm-hmm. So I guess that's probably one of the benefits of the, of, of the Mac Forbes project as, as it is that there's always something new to talk about. I, I, look, I look at wine brands and I go to their websites and it's like, you haven't up- updated your website in 20 years because you haven't needed to. You haven't changed anything. Whereas people like that, dynamic, I guess probably young consumers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what is Mac Forbes today? How many different cuvées are you releasing? Uh, we've got six sites that we're running ourselves now. Sure. Um, we'll... You know, we're putting in Trousseau and Aligotte this year and some Nebbiolo for fun. Pino is is uh, is absolutely still the big vehicle for us to look at what the Yarra is to us and what it means. Um, the, the funnest part of all of this for me is that we are putting things into the ground now that, you know, I'll be halfway into my grave by the time we start to really see what what that means to us as a region or at least us as farmers. And the, the biggest change, you talk about, you know, compared to 10 years ago, the biggest change is maybe not what we're doing in the cellar so much as how we're farming. And that is really the most exciting thing. The fact that we're now not trying to farm for absolute uniformity and to make a style, you realise that even the way you farm will affect style. And if you, you can interfere too much, a bit like, you know, adding your yeast, you can do a lot of things in the vineyard that actually strip character out of the vineyard and you lose the the soul of, of, of the hill or, or wherever those those plants are growing. And so for us to take the, you know, a much more exciting approach of trying to work out how to let the vines really morph into that hill and to, to adapt and be at one, um, you know, I think ultimately will lead to more robust plants that can cope with greater extremes, which I think is a you know a big question about how we see the next twenty years unfolding, and and so being more robust is a big thing. But then you know speaking clearly of where they grow through that adaptation to site is also paramount. So you know if we can leave various blocks where you know we might have a two acre like at worry it's two and a half acres we now farm that as six small blocks and they are all of incredibly different and offer such vivid one sections only you know three panels 10 rows across that makes a barrel mm. but that is totally different to the rest and you taste it in the vineyard as fruit you see the difference in the wine you know once it comes through to see that little bit of detail coming through consistently, whether it's a hot year or a cool year, that you you know you're marking that out, they're just baby steps, tiny tiny steps that means absolutely f all in the whole grand scheme of this world. But you know all you can do is really work within the parameters of your existence mm-hmm. and, and what you know where we're lucky to be working and farming, and that's exciting. And I guess probably one of the more recent uh, developments, which is uh, a fantastic opportunity for people to learn more about uh, your wines, is obviously opening up Grace Byrne Wine Room in Hillsville. 
and uh, you know, I've had the opportunity to to pop out. It's a really fun place for for people to uh, to just enjoy a glass of wine or to to ask more questions, find out more information. And I do recommend people head out to the to to Hillsville and and to the Yarra Valley as well. Explore the Yarra Valley because there are a lot of different parts of it. Crazy Yarra Valley. It's very different to twenty years ago. And yeah, I mean, we were mad enough to open this little space. Um, because we just want people to actually sit down and not have a rushed experience. Um, we weren't always able to accommodate people trying to pop into the winery and the winery is pretty ugly and just an operational winery. So to have a little bar, yeah, for all the pain of setting it up and, and looking after it, mm-hmm. it actually has been quite a good thing to do in the end, I think. Yeah. And, and you know, yeah, you're also showcasing wines that are not necessarily made by you, but uh, you know, you enjoy. And I guess that's 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 a, a really fun thing to do as well. Keep the glass full, I say. <laughs> uh, Mac, thank you very much for for making some time. I'm glad we were able to finally chat and and, and you know lay down a track, as it were. Um, the, for people who might want to find out more information, website, social media channels. If you could share those, please. Yeah, thankfully we're not 20 years old, so our website's a bit younger. It's uh, just macforbes.com and we're on Facebook and all the usual stuff. Twitter, Instagram, that kind of thing. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you again and uh, looking forward to seeing what the next 10 years holds. Yeah, that should be exciting. Thanks Thanks for having me. Cheers. And thank you, listeners, for joining me on another episode of The Vincast. I have been James Scaresbrook, also known as The Intrepid Wino, and you can follow me on social media on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm at Intrepid Wino, and you can also follow the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast. Come and visit my YouTube channel, Intrepid Wino. Lots of different videos on there, including my series of Let's Taste, where I taste Australian and New Zealand wines. Uh, there should be one going up very soon, uh, tasting one of Mac's recent Pinots, so um, you can see what I thought of his wine. Uh, you can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher, Podbean. You can also check it out on iHeartRadio. Uh, subscribing means you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available. And whilst you're there, I really do appreciate people who can uh, spare five minutes just to leave a rating and review to provide some feedback uh, and let me know which episodes they enjoyed or potentially which guests they'd like to hear from. Uh, You can find out all the information at my website, intrepidwino.com. Lots of different content there. uh, And also, I really do appreciate the support of the Earbuds Podcast Network. Make sure to check them out online and uh, have a listen to some of the other great podcasts on that network. But uh, guys, until next time, bye. Earbuds. Melbourne's Podcast Network. EarbudsNetwork.com.